Hello, shalom from Jerusalem. I'm David Parsons, uh, one of the vice presidents and the senior spokesman here at the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem. And we want to welcome you to this week's ICEJ weekly webinar. Uh, glad to have you. Uh, we always get such a, a good, nice crowd from all over the world, all continents. We hope you're having a, a good day. Today's webinar is a special one focused on Yom Hatzma'ut, which is in Hebrew, it uh, stands for Israel's Independence Day when they marked, when they marked the rebirth of Israel uh, 74 years ago in May of 1948. Of course, we're going by the Hebrew calendar here. Israel is marking this today. Uh, yesterday there was the uh, Yom uh, HaZikaron, the Day of Remembrance for all the fallen soldiers and the um, uh, victims of terror and, uh, and uh, two minutes of silence, a nationwide siren, everyone stops. And today you move into, you know, you go from mourning for those who lost trying to create and defend the state of Israel. Today you celebrate Israel's rebirth and it is an incredible uh, event uh, from May 14, 1948 on our calendar uh, that the rebirth of Israel 74 years ago, it had a tremendous impact uh, throughout the world and especially on Jews and Christians and Muslims. Each of those three communities had their own distinct reaction to the rebirth of Israel. And uh, we want to focus on, on that today, how the Jewish people, how Christians, and how the Muslim world reacted to the reappearance of a Jewish state on the world stage. Uh, we can say that uh, with confidence that it sent shockwaves throughout the world that are still reverberating to this day. Now, Israel's reemergence uh, as a sovereign uh, nation 74 years ago, back in their um, ancient homeland, their ancestral homeland, uh, it did not happen in a vacuum. There was a certain historic context. The, the Jews just didn't wake up one day and find the Jewish state on its doorstep. But it is interesting that Isaiah chapter 66, the prophet Isaiah asks an interesting question. We're going to start out uh, today's presentation with, uh, with some scripture. If you join me reading from the Word of God, this is Isaiah chapter 66, starting with verse 7. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came up upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause it to bring forth? Says the Lord, shall I, shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb? Says your God, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. <clears throat> Hallelujah. We, uh, it's an amazing question here. You know, you could say a rhetorical question. 
shall uh, um, a land be born in one day, shall a nation be brought forth in one moment. Of course, uh, we have the old adage that uh, a nation isn't born in a day or Rome wasn't built in a day. <clears throat> but here uh, it says there, there would come this moment of birthing for Zion to be restored. And uh, it's quite interesting that in modern times, uh, you know, in old times, this, uh, it was usually a city-state uh, like uh, Babylon, uh, you, you know, that grew in power, controlled a whole region, expanded out, became a great empire, and it took uh, years and years, decades and decades, even several generations of a certain dynasty to build some of the great empires of the ancient world. But today we do have this uh, worldwide system of governance that a nation can be born in a day, in a sense. It's based on what is known as the Westphalian system uh, for the international uh, legal order. Uh, this comes out of the Treaty of Westphalia around uh, 500 years ago or so, 400 and some years ago, that ended the Thirty Years' War which said, look, you know, each country should be sovereign and independent within its borders, and some other countries shouldn't be interfering, or the Vatican shouldn't be interfering over here, sort of uh, representing the sovereignty of, of different nations. And based on that sort of concept, in more modern times, we have what is known as the Montevideo Treaty under the, uh, the current UN system, this is a treaty uh, which sets out the circumstances where one country uh, can get recognized by other nations if it meets certain criteria. Uh, is it a distinct people with their own language, their own culture, uh, living in maybe a, an historic homeland? Uh, 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 you have a defined territory or land. A people and a land can make a nation, but you have to have some sort of government that's clearly in control of this area. And the fourth element, uh, they have to be capable of engaging in international relations, making commitments to other countries uh, based on that Westphalian system, the sovereignty of nations shouldn't have outside interference within their borders, and this notion that uh, if you meet these criteria, other st states can give recognition to you, that in modern times you've had all kinds of countries that even uh, someone like India, which was born about the same time as, as Israel as a modern day state, even though it had been a historic uh, country, empire, people for centuries and centuries, uh, India was recognized as a nation in 1948 based under this system, just as, as Israel was. And uh, I did a study once uh, because uh, the, the whole uh, question of Israel's independence uh, it's uh, sovereignty and restoration back in the land. There's another people that claim this land, the Palestinians. They have their own rival Palestinian national movement to create a Palestinian Arab state in the same land. And they've been fighting for this and engaging in terror and everything else, doing everything they can to oppose Israel and to create a Palestinian state here. 
and they've declared statehood quite a few times. A bunch of countries have recognized them, but they don't meet all the elements. They, they actually have a hundred and some, 115, 120 countries that recognize Palestine. But is it a, dist, uh, a distinct people living in a defined territory where the government that has control and, and all these elements, it seems every time they declare it, it, it the state is, is stillborn. Uh, and especially, you know, since, um, but, uh, you know, from the, the uh, perspective of prophetic scripture, where Isaiah says, shall a nation be born in a day? Yes, this rhetorical question. We can look back now at, at that and say, yes, even though Israel, the, the Jewish state, the Jewish nation was here for centuries, 3,000 year, 4,000 year connection all the way back to Abraham. They had, uh, they're the only people that's really had an independent, separate nation here in this land in all that time. This was recognized by the international community in the League of Nations, the predecessor to the United Nations, in the League of Nations mandate to the uh, British to create a mandate in Palestine for the purpose of creating, uh, establishing a Jewish national homeland. That's how it's put. You, you can try and cut it so many ways. That sounds like a Jewish state, a Jewish nation. The partition plan of 1947 approved a Jewish state in part of the land, an Arab state. There was a war over it. Somehow uh, Israel emerged victorious in that war of independence and the nations uh, the next year, uh, many nations started recognizing it in the next year, 1949, Israel was admitted by uh, the UN, uh, members of the UN as a member state of the United Nations itself. And uh, so a nation was born in a day, the Jewish state, even though it had existed in ancient times. But, uh, you know, this, this notion of, of a, a country being born in one day, uh, you're talking here about birthing, and birthing takes time. It's just, you know, you can bear, you can, uh, a child is born on one day, you have a birthday, but you're nine months in the womb. That birthing is a whole long process that often involves suffering. And uh, we can turn to women about the pain of childbirth and the whole bearing a child in your womb for nine months. It's not so easy. And so Israel's rebirth, even though it has a certain day, May 14, 1948, a certain birthday where it came into existence in modern times under our modern system, it came into existence within a certain context, within a certain process that involves suffering. And that historic context, uh, we can never really separate it from another event just before it, that Israel was born as a nation in the aftermath of the Holocaust. And the Holocaust and the rebirth of Israel, even though the nations had started recognizing a pre-existing right in the uh, League of Nations mandate in Palestine. They already recognized the Jewish people had an historic pre-existing right to establish their nation here. The actual birthing of that nation took place uh, just a few years after the Jewish people went through their, their greatest tragedy in their history. And 
and you, you know you you have to recognize this that the Jewish people had been in exiled and scattered for 2,000 years with this longing to to go back to their homeland and in all their two millennia of, of journeying and their hard journey among the nations they eventually reached this lowest point, this nadir of the Holocaust, a seven-year period or so from 1938 through 45, where the Nazis in Germany were implementing this policy of, of uh, exterminating all the Jews of Europe. They actually targeted 13, uh, uh, it was 11 million Jews at the time that they counted within Europe and North Africa and the Nazis control, gained control a lot of this through their, their aggression, their invasion of other countries, and started eliminating Jews and murdered six million of them, of course. And just as this immense uh, tragedy, this horrible genocide is being exposed at the end of, of uh, World War II with the liberation of the concentration camps, how is it that Israel hit, hits this low point and then just three years later, they managed to do something they were never able to really reach in, in 2,000 years of exile, wanting to go back and restore themselves to their ancient homeland, never able to do it. They reached their lowest point in exile in the, in the Shoah, the Nazi genocide against them. And, and then three years later, the Jewish state is born and recognized as if in one day. And so we have to really consider what we're celebrating today on Yom Hatzmahut as a miracle, really in the classic uh, sense, in, in every way, a, a, a divine miracle, a, a, an unusual event that has no natural explanation. Uh, and you know, we could call it a, a biblical miracle or, or whatever. But when we try to understand the, you know, the idea of, of a, a miracle, you know, the Catholics have this thing that if you um, uh, want to uh, promote someone for sainthood, that you have to be able to document and, and prove and show that they performed at least three miracles in their, in their lives. You know, they helped this, they did that, they healed whatever. And all the hundreds of Catholic saints, uh, you have to go through that process of proving it. But, you know, no one really re remembers what Saint Bernard or Saint whoever did and, and whatever. But something like the Holocaust, this, this is, is an amazing miracle that Israel was reborn just three years later. And for me, you know, to really say something is a miracle, it's something that, uh, a divine miracle, it's something that you can rejoice in, that really causes you to, to, to uh, be happy about it. And not all Christians rejoice in the rebirth of Israel in 1948. Uh, some uh, join with the Palestinians in uh, making it a day of mourning, what they call the Nakba day, the, the day of the disaster of Israel's rebirth. They consider it a, a day of disaster. But Isaiah says we should rejoice with Jerusalem, rejoice with the Jewish people, that they're being restored to their holy city, to their ancient homeland. And I'd say, uh, uh, you know, a divine or biblical miracle 
besides rejoicing in it, you know, is something to really celebrate and be happy about, it also has to have a certain shock value. It's not, it's more than just a surprise. It has to have the, you know, it leave you with this lasting amazement. How did that happen? How did he walk on the water? How did he feed 5,000 with a few fishes and a few loaves? How did this happen? You still say today, and I'm sure people who witnessed it, they went their whole life, how did those things happen? And something, you know, a miracle is something you just can't get past it in some ways because it's something uh, unusual that has happened without any natural explanation. The natural process that we know about can never explain what happened. And we'd have to say what happened with Israel, there, there was divine intervention on the scale that we could consider it a mighty and amazing miracle to this day. And when we talk about that shock value of the rebirth, the miracle of the rebirth of Israel, um, it was actually a shock to the Jewish people in many ways. Uh, it was a relief that this uh, horrible threat, this cloud, this darkness that had been hanging over Europe through the Nazis and had been uh, wiping out the Jewish people as many as it could was finally uh, off, that now you had a Jewish state back in the land, even though there was still opposition, Israel was now free and independent to, to turn this state into a safe haven so that another Holocaust wouldn't happen, that now there was a place where the Jews could defend themselves. And this was a mighty relief. It was still, the, it was, the, the state was born in the midst of a war as yet another example of the Jews being cursed. Look, they're in exile. God's thrown them out there never to bring them back to the land. And here's another example of the curse of God on the Jewish people, six million Jews wiped out. It is the fact that the state of Israel, the Jewish nation was reborn here in the land just three years later that was a major, great, uh, immense theological shock to the Christian world. The Holocaust was a moral shock that Christian teaching against the Jews had created this atmosphere where some pagan guy like Hitler could come along and manipulate Christians into helping him kill all these Jews. That needed to change. But here, it was Christian theology that was now being tested by the rebirth of Jewish sovereignty here in the land. And it was no longer easy to defend the teaching of contempt and the teaching that the Jews were uh, left by God in permanent exile from their homeland. And so uh, after the Holocaust and after the rebirth of Israel, you put those together, all, you know, a real miracle, that sudden turnaround against the, the tide of history, even when most Jews had opposed a, a Jewish state, recreating their own Jewish state, all of a sudden it happens and churches have to revisit their teachings and their doctrines and their theological positions, such as re replacement theology and the odious charge of genocide. And so you have, uh, you know, the Catholic Church 
as this major global institution that slowly over the following decades began to uh, really rethink its approach to Israel, to the Jewish people, and at the Vatican to Council uh, in the uh, mid-1960s. Uh, um, we see an example of, of a, a, an established church going through an introspection process where they uh, renounced replacement theology, the teaching of contempt, uh, they, they continue to make a process. We do have to give credit to the uh, Catholic Church at some level for, for making these changes. There are Eastern Orthodox churches that are still clinging to replacement theology and, and anti-Semitic teachings. There are other churches in different ways. Uh, have uh, It's sort of hidden in different ways, but it's much of it is still that same old teaching. They haven't had that process of introspection, but for the most part, most of the Christian world was shocked morally and theologically by the Holocaust, by the rebirth of Israel, and it's had this major impact uh, throughout the world. But you still have some uh, churches, some church leaders, theologians that are still struggling to this day. They refuse to adjust their theology to match the reality of restored Jewish sovereignty in the land. They would rather change the reality to go back to fit their theology of a dispossessed Jewish people wandering in the nations, a scattered Israel. And so we have churches, we have church activists, um, scholars, theologians, we could start naming some, but the, the, many are well known that have joined the, the BDS campaign, the boycott, divest, and sanction campaign against Israel, the whole charge that Israel is an apartheid state that needs to be illuminated. They're trying to delegitimize and, uh, and uh, tear down the Jewish state for theological reasons, because they don't want to give up their old theological teachings that the Jews were abandoned by God and exiled to the nations. And you just have to wonder how long are they going to resist God when God performs such a miracle before our eyes, something that we should be rejoicing in. But that's the impact of the rebirth of Israel and the context of the Holocaust uh, uh, for that rebirth, that uh, the impact that it had on the Christian world. And thank God today we have a worldwide movement of Christians like many of you watching today who pray for Israel, stand with Israel, support Israel in so many ways. Uh, this is different. A hundred years ago, the majority of the Christian world uh, either couldn't care less about the Jews or looked down on them with contempt based on, on the, the teachings of their churches in many ways. And we've had a sea change because of the Holocaust and the rebirth of Israel 74 years ago. Finally, we want to look at the rebirth of Israel and its impact on the Muslim world, the Islamic world. And I would have to say it was a crushing theological and, and cultural shock to the Arab and Muslim world. This was because for centuries, and I think that this is largely ignored, it's not addressed in today's political correct society. You can't talk about these things, but we need to talk about it here. 
because Islam for centuries had taught the Muslim people that they belonged to a superior faith, that what they received in the Quran was actually a correction of parts of the Old Testament that the Jews had falsified and, and changed, things in the New Testament that the Christians had changed and falsified, and Muhammad comes along with a revelation to restore some sort of original thinking and original belief, uh, and therefore that Islam and the Quran were a superior revelation of God or Allah, uh, and the Muhammad was the one true prophet, and therefore those who followed this religion, this superior faith, they were a superior people and therefore had a natural right to rule over the Jewish and Christian minorities within their midst. And this is something that the Muslims in the Middle East, particularly the Arab world, but in other countries, were taught uh, for centuries. 1400 years of this that gets kind of inculcated into you that as a Muslim you're superior to those Jews or Christians who may be your neighbors but they're a minority uh, almost this sense that you're a protector of them if they want to stay they should convert to Islam if they want to stay a Jew or a Christian then we'll let them stay but they're under our protection but they're second-class citizens it was called the demitude system a second-class inferior uh, system uh, that prevailed throughout much of the middle east and and north africa for around 1400 years it relegated christians and jews to second-class citizenship under muslim domination and yet <clears throat> When Israel emerged victorious from its War of Independence in 1948, believe me, for the Arab and Muslim world, this was a shock. It was a shock to their teachings and their sense of superiority, and they could not accept it. That's why I say sometimes a miracle is something that you're still, years later, you're still uh, scratching your head and you just can't quite come to terms with it. How did that happen? And how did this ragtag band of, of Jews who somehow managed to get a few weapons from Czechoslovakia, how did they uh, beat on the battlefield uh, larger Muslim armies who belonged to a superior faith? Uh, and you know, it was something they couldn't explain and this happened just three years after the Jews suffered so horribly in the Holocaust. And this all has to be explained away in some, in some way that, you know, it's a miracle, but, you know, when the Arab and Muslim world and when they've tried to uh, really come to terms with it, you've had uh, emerging out of it this endless string of bizarre conspiracy theories about uh, Israel's unlikely triumph 74 years ago in the War of Independence. For example, you know, you have this, this uh, theory that um, it was Western colonialists who conspired with the Jews to implant, you know, a foreign entity, the Jews, back here in the, in the Middle East, in the Arab world, that the, there were Americans secretly fighting alongside the Jews in 1948, uh, or this really hideous notion 
that the Zionists and the Nazis conspired together, they collaborated uh, in the Holocaust to win world sympathy uh, in order for the Jews to get their state back and swindle the Arab and Muslim world out of their lands. And you might think this is bizarre, but believe me, this is the very sort of conspiracy theory and nonsense that the foreign minister of Russia, uh, Sergei Lavrov, has just expressed this week. It's not some notion that he came up with that Hitler himself was Jewish, and there's all sorts of examples of capo Jews who, who came along and, and collaborated with the Nazis to cause this Jewish suffering, that the Zionists uh, collaborated with the Nazis uh, in, in, in some devious plot to somehow plant the Jewish state here in the land. It, it is true that there are questions, was Hitler Jewish? Uh, it's, it's never been proven. His father was illegitimate. The search for his grandfather on his father's side uh, has produced all sorts of theories that he might have been Jewish or something. There's never any proof, but the, uh, the Russians have used this before. Hitler's political opponents tried to first raise this uh, in the 1930s in Germany, and it sort of made it into Russian and Soviet propaganda in the Middle East, this idea that Hitler himself was Jewish and all. There's no proof of it. It is a historic fact that there were some Jews who, you know, they had special uniforms to try and keep order with They weren't armed or anything. They couldn't force anyone to do anything themselves. But you had certain Jews who were, uh, you know, um, recruited by the Nazis or forced by the Nazis to keep order within the Jewish community. Uh, and, uh, but it was so few and such uh, an anomaly, and all these things being expressed by uh, Lavrov this week, which had been prominent in the, Jew in the Arab and Muslim world for decades, he said it this, just, this week just to be mean and cruel in the midst of a very brutal war. That it, there's no real, it had no real truth or impact on anything that happened. The Jews suffered, the Nazis was horrible, and you know, saying the Ukrainians today are like the Nazis, they, they know, they know that the Nazis were far, far worse. But by saying that, you really don't know who the Nazis were and what they were trying to do, trying to hunt down every Jewish child and mother and, and son in Europe. Come on. You, you know, you, nothing really compares to that sort of demonic, a campaign to wipe out an entire people and uh, to, to make Nazi comparisons. We should all be very, very careful about it. But it's been happening here in the Middle East for decades, trying to explain how Israel emerged victorious in the war in 1948. Uh, maybe the Holocaust uh, wasn't as bad as some claim. Maybe only 600,000 Jews died, as Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas has uh, insisted in, a, uh, in a, a doctorate he did in, in a university in Moscow. And when we get into this area, even Iran and uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini 
uh, and understanding uh, the phenomena of Islamic fundamentalism today, which uh, the Shia version of it is, con is really led by Iran, the, uh, the Sunni uh, Muslim Arab version of it is, is Al-Qaeda, it's ISIS and such. To understand Islamic fundamentalism today, it really is in reaction to the rebirth of Israel uh, 48 years ago because Ayatollah Khomeini himself, he preached uh, and it became a popular message in Iran throughout the Muslim world that uh, the, uh, the Muslim armies were being defeated by this little band of Jews here in, in the land of Palestine, in the land of Israel, because the Muslims had gotten away from the basics or the fundamentals of Islam. They were, you know, slipping up and backsliding in their faith, and they needed to get back to those fundamentals of all the things that good Muslims should be doing. And when, once they did, then you would see their armies being victorious on the battlefield, that somehow Allah was displeased with them. This was a basic teaching uh, by uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, part of the Islamic revolution in Iran that they've tried to export. The Sunnis have come up with their own version of it. And that is still behind, you know, this Muslim shock and reaction to the rebirth of Israel in 1948. This is still a theological shock. It is still behind Iran's uh, never-ending plotting and drive and efforts to uh, wipe Israel off the map. It's still with us today, that sort of shock and reaction. Thank God some Arabs are finally coming to terms with the very historic fact that Jews are indigenous to the Middle East. They lived here, not only here in the land of Israel, but in the Arabian Peninsula, in, in Baghdad, in Damascus, and, and whatever. We even have Paul on the road to Damascus. Why to, do, to uh, um, uh, attack some Christians, persecute Christians there, largely Jews in a synagogue there because there were synagogues, because there were Jews there whether in Egypt, Alexandria, other areas, Jews throughout the Middle East, indigenous to the land, and, and coming back today, they're coming back to a land where their ancestors once dwell, dwelt, and through the Abraham Accords and other ways, they're, they're coming to terms with the existence of Israel. But if you really want to get to the heart of why Muslims are attracted, many Muslims are attracted to Zionist conspiracy theories, Holocaust denial, uh, if you want to um, understand why there's never been an Israeli-Palestinian peace, why the Palestinians haven't come to terms with the existence of Israel. It's this whole centuries of teaching that Muslims follow a superior faith, therefore they're a superior people with a natural right to uh, lord it over uh, Jewish and Christian minorities in their midst. Israel is a break from that. It is something that cannot be tolerated because then other uh, Jews or other Christian minorities, other peoples might break from the pack and become independent themselves. They can't allow it to happen. And that is probably the real root cause, a theological, cultural root uh, cause of the lack of peace here in the Middle East between Israel and those who still oppose it. And having said all this, 
you know, we'll just conclude by saying that it's hard to deny that the rebirth of Israel 74 years ago was anything but a miracle that defies explanation. Uh, and in fact, there, there were a series of miracles and unusual uh, incidences leading up to Israel's rebirth that you just have to scratch your head and, and, and still be in amazement to it to this day. Uh, for instance, Theodore Herzl he was seeking an audience um, with the Kaiser, the ruler of Germany at the time, to see if the Germans at the time, they weren't quite so anti-Semitic, Hitler and the Nazis hadn't come along, but he was hoping maybe they could, uh, would want to help sponsor and help create a Jewish state back here in the Middle East. And he, he sought this meeting, and he never really had a meeting, but there was this brief encounter as the Kaiser was coming and visiting Jerusalem that there was a photo of uh, Herzl standing there on the ground, and the Kaiser's on a horse, they're in the land of Israel, and, and uh, you know, Herzl's greeting him, and he passes on. They hardly said anything, nothing really happened, but that photo went out, and all the great other great powers of Europe, whether it was the, the Tsar in Russia, whether it was in Britain, the, the uh, king and the government there in Parliament, uh, some of the great powers of Europe, they started this sort of discussion and competition, you know, rivalry, who was going to be the main sponsor if there was going to be a Jewish state recreated back in the land, who was going to be its main sponsor. It would set off this simple photo of Herzl saying hi to the Kaiser on his ride up to Jerusalem, set off this sort of rivalry among the great powers of Europe, who was going to be the main sponsor of this, and it turned out that Britain uh, would be the, the manda mandatory power, the one who committed in the Balfour Declaration in 19, November 1917 to help establish a Jewish uh, homeland here in the, uh, in the land of Israel, which was then affirmed in the League of Nations mandate for Britain and Palestine, and then the birth of Israel in 1948. You also have a sort of a strange twist where the Ottoman Turks were sort of allied with Germany uh, in, as World War I heated up, but they really didn't want to get involved in the war. Uh, but for some reason they decided to, and, and uh, you know, next thing you know, the British and the other allies in that war drive the Ottomans out of the Middle East and create the environment where a Jewish state could be reborn here. And you look back at all these facts and all these twists and turns, it's actually against the tide of history, but they, they you know, slowly, one by one, these little miracles created this big miracle that even in the middle tragedy and suffering of the Holocaust, Israel was born, and even in the wake of that, as it was being uncovered, the Jews that had gathered here, around 600,000 Jews, including 200,000 200, Holocaust survivors who were being rushed into the land to, for safety, that they won, they defeated larger better trained, better armed, better commanded Arab armies invading from all sides. They beat them on the battlefield and the Jewish state was reborn. Uh, read it again from uh, Isaiah 66. 
plenty of reason for us to rejoice on Yom Hatzma'ud, Israel's Independence Day, in the rebirth of Israel. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. The miracle of the restoration of Israel is not over. There's still many glorious things to come ahead, but thank God you follow scripture correctly, you handle it correctly, you realize we're in the uh, part of a, uh, we're in the midst of a process of God restoring the people physically, the Jewish people physically to the land and then spiritually to himself. This is something we as Christians should rejoice in. It is evidence of the hand of God uh, still in the affairs of men. It is evidence of, the, of a faithful and loving God who made promises to Abraham 4,000 years ago that he would deliver the land as an everlasting possession to his natural descendants, the Jewish people. And this has, uh, he's kept this promise to this day. That is something to rejoice in. This Yom Hatzma'ut, Happy Israel Independence Day. 2022. God bless you as we end this uh, ICEJ weekly webinar. Uh, join us uh, next Wednesday for our global prayer gathering, uh, and then we'll have another webinar next Thursday, same time, 4 p.m. 4 p.m. Wednesday, next Wednesday for the global prayer gathering, and 4 p.m. next Thursday. Uh, for the uh, webinar. We're having our International Leadership Conference. The Christian Embassy is bringing in national directors and other uh, members of our staff, our representatives from all around the world. And we're gonna be gathering here post-corona for the first time in a couple years. And uh, we're gonna have a good time and we're gonna give you updates and reports and give you that prayer burden. Join us in prayer then. We'll have some of our representatives uh, joining us on the Global Prayer Gathering and then on next week's webinar. We'll see you then. God bless you from Jerusalem. Feliz Dia de la Independencia Israel! Bonne fête d'indépendance Israël. Happy Independence Day, long live Israel. Israël. Independence Day, Israel. Israel, herzlichen Glückwunsch zum Unabhängigkeitstag. Ein gesegende Unabhängigkeitstag, Israel. Menigayang Aro na Kalayaan, Israel. Israel, today is your day. Hello! Waka noi noi vinaka ni tuva kaikoya e Israeli. Viva Israel! 
स्वतंत्र दिवास की शुभकामनीय इसराइल वी लव यू वी स्टैंड फॉर यू Thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next Thursday at 4 p.m. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on our social media pages for more exclusive ICJ content.